the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Afternoon Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Them for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, life questions, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com where you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I want to remind you, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR app. Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything then is hands-free, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we've got a lot going on. Let me just share my heart for just a moment. Today, uh, Paul and I had the privilege of taking our Academy staff um, to lunch. It was our staff appreciation lunch. This is the next to last week of the school year. And, um, you know, when we were driving home, Paula said to me, she said, you know, we were sitting in a room with a bunch of heroes. And she's right. These are faith heroes. These are men and women who work at a free school. There's no income coming in. Most of them have been working here for a very long time. They have sacrificed a lot and yet they're still here and God is still using them to do a marvelous work and it really, really was uh, and will be again next year if I'm still around uh, an honor and a privilege just to say thank you to them. Um, I would ask you to keep them all in prayer. Pastor Will uh, and his staff, the teachers, the aides in the school, uh, we're finishing our twenty second year uh, of the academy. Uh, it was the academy that people said couldn't happen. Oh, you can't do a free school. Nobody can do a free school. Uh, over the last five years, we've seen many, many, many churches close their schools uh, because they weren't uh, able to afford them. Uh, we've never even for a moment thought about closing ours, and we don't charge anything. It's an amazing thing, and I couldn't do it. We couldn't do it without the people willing to make those sacrifices. It is uh, an amazing thing. And over the years, we have maintained 100% college placement. You know, we're not an accredited school because you can't be free and be accredited. So we chose free. That's what the Lord said. And we have 100% college placement. Now, some of those kids don't end up going to college. They go to the military. They get go into a career or something. But 100% of our kids that have graduated here have been placed in colleges. A week from today, uh, we will have our graduating seniors uh, on the radio program as we do every year. Uh, It's just an amazing thing to be a part of this work and to watch God provide every single day. 
every single day. And that's just one of the things that we do. But today was their day. Uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be teaching one of the really fun chapters, um, one of the most famous chapters, although I'm not going to get to the most famous part till next week. But um, we're teaching First Kings chapter 18 as uh, Elijah calls out the prophets of Baal for a face-to-face showdown. It's 850 to 1. Just the odds God likes. And, of course, we know the story. Uh, So we'll set it all up. The battle will set it up tonight. And then a week from tonight, we will be back um, with the culmination of it. Um, Elijah having now been prepared. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel. You can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com. If you can't get here, it's always better in person. And... um, um, We've always got room on Wednesday night, so that would be a blessing to see you. And then, of course, tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. And I don't know what she's going to talk about, but it's always interesting. And so that's tomorrow uh, at 4 o'clock. Okay, let's get to some questions that have been sent in, and we'll await your phone calls. This one is from Richard from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. What do you think about professing Christians protesting? There are many churches that are protesting the government equality, gun rights, Black Lives Matter, defunding the police, etc. Is it okay to church for churches to be a part of these events? Many churches say that this is what God wants. Um, Richard, we're to honor the government. We're to pray for our governors. We can disagree with them, but we are to honor them and we are to pray for them. And, um, you know, um, the protest is an American right. Uh, It isn't a Christian right. Here's the one thing that I think we forget because we're so focused on our rights, you know, the right to life and the pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, Our Bibles strip those rights from us. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. And I think if we're going to think about this biblically, the, the, the um, answer to your question is no, this isn't something that Christians ought to be doing. We can make our, our votes known, our, our desires known at the ballot box. That's what we ought to do. But I think our energy, Richard, ought to be spent on advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, I know there are rights that we hold on to as Christians. Now, there are liberal Christians who most of the time really aren't Christians at all. There are conservative Christians, and some of those are are, are almost idol worshipers because uh, their idols are our rights and uh, conservative causes. Um, But the the reality is that our job, our, our charge is to preach the word. That's what Paul told Timothy. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. And that's what we ought to do. Now, does that mean that we can never protest? No, I think there are some things that are worth protesting. Uh, I'll just give you one example. And and, uh, um, as long as we don't violate the law, as long as we don't hurt somebody, as long as we don't misrepresent Jesus, I think it is appropriate for Christians to publicly protest abortion. But remember, we can't misrepresent Christ in the process. And I think that's what we do. And in fact, most people don't even think about Jesus in those protests. Um, Defunding the police. Who wants to live in a lawless world? Oh, wait, we already do, don't we? So I think there are things that that we can voice our opinions on, but it's always got to be, Richard in the context of this is what Christ wants us to do. I one time said during the the um, uh, BLM protests uh, here in San Antonio, uh, and we have a, a large number of African Americans in our church, and we had a, uh, after the George Floyd murder, we, we had a, a meeting here at the church on a Saturday. Um, we took a pastor's class and talked about it, and the place was absolutely packed. Absolutely packed because we're 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 dealing with questions. Well, is this okay or is that okay? And um, I said, my position is simple. If you were in that protest, then you ought to have been telling people about Jesus Christ. 
It's that simple because he's our cause. And I think we've got our kingdom so confused, Richard, that that we need to sort of have a course correction. See, my biggest issue is not gun rights. I know a lot of Christians are attached to their guns. Uh, I'm only attached to Jesus Christ. Now, I have no objection to people that carry guns. But if that's my cause, then as a Christian, I've missed the point. Uh, Those who are professing Christians, um, but not really born again, um, you know, they grab onto causes because that's what's important to them. But remember, the way to identify a Christian is by our connection to our cause, and our cause is Jesus Christ. So I hope that makes sense to you, Richard. It's, I think, uh, um, something that we need to remember. Let's go to Michelle from San Antonio on line one. Michelle, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Hi. Can you hear me? I can hear you well. Thanks. Okay. Um, So I'm reading in Acts um, chapter 13, and I read, uh, I think it's verse 2, and it's on the church of Antioch, and it's speaking about Barnabas and Saul, and it says that they were found ministering to the Lord. Um, And so I just found that curious, the way that was worded, that they were ministering to the Lord. Um, And I just wanted to see if you could help uh, break that down for me a little bit. Yeah, I can, Michelle. Thank you. I think a better translation of that word, and I'm going to read it out of the 1984 version of the NIV, which I think is by far the best New Testament translation. Not so in the the Old Testament, but I think it's by far the best New Testament translation. And it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So what they were doing is worshiping God. They were seeking the Lord and they were fasting as a symbol. Remember, um, uh, Barnabas and Simeon, um, um, these people who were in Antioch, they were seeking the Lord's direction. What's next is what they were asking. And the best way to hear from the Lord is to worship him. And in this particular case, fasting was signifying to to the Lord that was just a physical symbol of, um, I'm, I'm denying myself, Lord. Your will, not my will be done. And I'm doing without food, not to impress you, not to twist your arm to answer us, but simply to identify with the complete and total surrender of my flesh. And it was while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and that's fasting and prayer always goes together, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Now, this is a momentous moment in church history because this is when Saul of Tarsus, before he became the Apostle Paul, this is Saul of Tarsus getting to work in ministering to the Gentiles, our ancestors. And so uh, the Holy Spirit, because they were worshiping the Lord, because it was God's will and they were willing to hear it and obey it, the Holy Spirit then was able to say to them, okay, now take Barnabas and take Saul and I'm going to send them out. And then the next verse says, so after they had fasted and prayed, they didn't stop praying. These elders just kept fasting and praying. They placed their hands on them and sent them off. And it says the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. And the first missionary journey was born. So this is all about seeking the Lord, uh, doing um, uh, what, what they were called to do. And again, the reason this is so monumental, uh, Michelle, is because uh, Saul uh, will now soon become Paul, the greatest apostle of, the all, of all, and, and the man that I personally believe was used by God to a greater degree than anyone else. Uh, you were reading either the King James or the New King James, and I think uh, if you look at the word, it said that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit set them apart. What a great moment that was. Michelle, thank you very, very much. I know a lot of people who are really, really on edge about, okay, God, what's your plan for my life? And I think Michelle's passage of Scripture just gave us sort of a clue. If you want to find out what God has for you, worship Him. Serve Him. That's what fasting symbolizes. There's nothing, uh, fasting doesn't obligate God to answer our prayers. 
But fasting just identifies that, you know, I'm willing to, to, to deny my flesh. Uh, when Paul and I came to San Antonio, Michelle, um, um, neither one of us were thrilled about being here. Now, I was thrilled personally that I knew what God wanted. You know, I'm a pretty late-in-life Christian. I got saved just before my 40th birthday. And uh, I wanted to get started. And when the Lord spoke to our hearts and said, it's San Antonio, Texas, go there, we had no plans at all. But boy, were we worshiping the Lord when when Paula prayed and heard from the Lord. Uh, We set our face as flint. We're going to get to San Antonio because that's where Jesus is going to meet us. And I, I think that's the way we find out God's will. He didn't tell us anything about San Antonio, and we didn't know what we were going to do or how we were going to do it. But here we are 27 years later, and it has been the greatest single privilege of my life in terms of my service for the Lord. Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate the phone call very, very much. Let's go to a question. This one is from Wanda. Um, She says, Should Christians wear expensive clothes or jewelry? I think it would be better if we were very modest in our lifestyles. Wanda, I think it's fine for you to think it would be better if we were modest in our lifestyles. Modesty is always a good thing. However, you or I, we don't have any right to impose our beliefs in this area on other people. That's between them and the Lord. So should Christians wear expensive clothes or jewelry? I don't know. That's between them and the Lord. If God's okay with it, why wouldn't we be? I think sometimes we think that we've got to live almost lives of poverty to please the Lord. And that's simply not at all true. You know, I know a lot of Christians who are pretty wealthy people. And the result is that they minister to people where they work, in their businesses, um, in the streets, wherever they go. They minister to people in their economic categories. And they look just like all of the people that they're ministering to. So why wouldn't that be okay? Yeah, I think it's okay if Christians wear um, clothes or jewelry uh, that, that is on the expensive side. Now, let me say one other thing, Wanda, and I don't know if this is what prompted your question. But there has been a lot on the Internet about uh, Christian pastors who are wearing um, $1,000, $2,000, even dollars $5,000 sneakers. And they're, they're, you know, just sort of wearing things to be cool and, and that kind of thing. That kind of nonsense doesn't make any, any sense at all. But, um, you know, where you buy your clothes, what you spend your money on is, is a, a personal matter. Um, I uh, I dress modestly, but but I wear nice shirts. For example, I wear colorful shirts. I I don't want to to look like a, a typical gray suit um, pastor. I want people to know that that serving Jesus is fun, and 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 so that's just just that's the way I'm comfortable. I'm fine with that. Um, I just don't think that we need to dress down. Um, in your case, Wanda, Romans fourteen twenty three says anything not of faith is sin. So for you, because you'd probably feel a little bit guilty if you were wearing expensive clothes or jewelry, I think in that case it would be better for you not to do it. So again, we shouldn't flaunt our wealth. That's not the point. But but I think it's important to have the freedom to do as we feel we're led by the Lord to do. Every man or woman, Wanda, is going to stand before the Lord individually. And we're not going to be there to give our opinion, and God doesn't need it. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Xavier. He says, Leviticus 26, verses 44 to 46, seems to support, support slavery. Am I right? Let me read the passage, Xavier, and then I'll talk about it. Um, Leviticus begins, Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. 
You can will them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. Now, there's a lot there, Xavier, but let me say, first of all, the Bible nowhere supports slavery. Paul, in writing to Timothy, he he talks about men-stealers, and that's those who are slave traders, and and he equates them with murderers and and, and sexually immoral, and uh, so, so the Bible nowhere supports slavery. Slavery in the ancient world was a fact of life. And and in this case, the the law of Moses uh, was simply dealing with the reality and giving guidelines, um, commands, really, on how to treat slaves. Now, if a an Israelite had a slave, God is saying, because I belong or you belong to me, then your slave is going to be the luckiest slave around because you're going to treat that slave better. You must not treat them ruthlessly. Now, uh, there was no race issue with slavery. Um, It was an economic issue. Uh, Slaves outnumbered free men in the world in Jesus' time uh, by a ratio of four to one. And and sometimes slavery was simply a way to pay a debt. Um, People would sell themselves into slavery. Other people, as Leviticus indicates, were born into slavery. It was a fact of life. Now, because we're sensitive, uh, and rightly so, uh, around the issue of slavery, one of the things that we have to remember is uh, the ancient world wasn't nearly as sensitive as we are. Slavery was wrong then, and it's wrong now, but God was preparing his people to deal with a world as it was, not as we wish it were. And I think that's important. We have to be prepared and equipped to deal with the world that we live in, not with some utopia that has never existed. So uh, it's not supporting slavery. What it is is instructing slave and slave owners about how to live. And we find some of that, uh, Xavier, in the New Testament uh, as well. So that's the issue, I think, um, regarding slavery. The Bible never commends slavery, but it recognizes it, it, it as a fact of life. Here's a question from Ted. Now, we're inside, I think, almost a little over three minutes before uh, this half of the program ends. Ted says, uh, Pastor Ron, how much responsibility do I have to make, how much responsibility do I have uh, to make or in order to make my own path in life? God is the potter, I'm the clay, I get that. Does that mean I do nothing or am I to make my own way? Ted, the answer is so simple. All you got to do is follow Jesus. That's all you got to do. You don't have to do anything. God, Ephesians 2.10 says, uh, created you and has prepared you for service that's been prepared for you. So all you have to do is walk with Jesus. You don't have to make a decision. One of the things that that really, really gave me relief as a brand new Christian uh, those 31 years ago was that I realized, and I'm, I'm so grateful to God because he gave me a great measure of faith. And I don't mean the kind of faith that you're thinking of, but just, okay, he said it, so I believe it. This is, these are the adjustments I have to make. But, but as, a, as a businessman, a successful businessman, um, I had to make decisions all the time. And one of the things that I became aware of when I gave my heart to Jesus, Ted, was that I no longer had to make decisions. All I had to do was follow Jesus and let him lead me in making those decisions or let him lead me into the places where the decisions would become manifest. That's all we had to do. So here's the thing, Ted. You don't have to do anything. God is the potter and you're the clay, so put yourself in the potter's hands and let him shape you and let him mold you. I know I sound like a worship song now, but let him shape you and let him mold you. Let him wet you with the Holy Spirit and then let him have his way in your life. But too often I've encountered people, and most often men, who say, well, well, God's going to make me do something or I'm, I'm just not going to do it. No, we've got to step out in obedience to the Lord. Know your Bible. Be involved in a church. Serve the church. Let the Holy Spirit fall upon you. And then he will meet you. It was just like the question we had about uh, Barnabas and Saul. 
They were worshiping the Lord. They were with Jesus. And they were praying and fasting. And then the word of the Lord came to them. So when the word of the Lord comes to you, that's when you go. But in the meantime, do not do nothing. Do something. Use the gifts that God has given you. And use those gifts in the context of the church that he's led you to. And if you're not in a church, if you're not serving in that church, Ted, you can sit around forever and God's going to just sort of be metaphorically twiddling his thumbs um, waiting for you to say, okay, Lord, here I am. So if God is the potter, as a lump of clay, jump in his hands, follow Jesus, and he will lead you to the place and to the ministries that he wants you to be in. And if you'll do that, then you'll realize that all the worry about how much responsibility do I have, it's all God. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. All we've got to do is demonstrate faith. We trust him. It's okay, Lord, use me. Thank you, Ted. I hope that helps. Hey, we'd love your calls. We've got 30 minutes left in the show, 340-9585. This is the word to stand on for life. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Hey, welcome back from the break. We have 30 minutes left for your questions and answers. Here is a question from Samuel. He says, I was baptized as an infant into the Lutheran Church. Should I get baptized again? Since I got saved, Samuel, the answer is yes, because you haven't really been baptized. Uh, an infant has no ability to to, to will, um, to, to make that choice, uh, to understand uh, what baptism means. Um, and so it was something that was foisted upon you. And, and yes, as a born-again believer, you ought to get baptized again and make it a, the, one of the best days of your life. It's your public proclamation of your faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, this would be a great part of your your witness. You know, when we do our baptisms, uh, we typically will have a microphone available. Uh, people, if they want to share a, a brief testimony about what got them there, this would be a great testimony. You know, I was baptized as an infant, but I wasn't really saved. And there's a lot of people that think baptism, infant or otherwise, guarantees entrance to heaven. And we know, Samuel, that's not the case. So yes, get baptized again and make it one of the best days of your life because Jesus will be smiling uh, as you go under the water and make that public profession of faith. Dave says, is someone who believes there is no objective truth able to be saved? Uh, This is the world that we live in now. Um, Dave, no, nobody who, who, anyone who believes that there's no objective truth can't be saved because they'll deny that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, they can be saved if they repent, if they confess Jesus Christ as Lord of their life, and if they believe, according to Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 9, that he was raised from the dead. I would add, um, they would believe that he's coming back again. So that's how to be saved. But you've got to know that you're saved. And, and uh, someone who, who would say, no, I don't believe in objective truth, they're actually, it's a, it's a logical inconsistency because they're stating an objective fact. Uh, so it's just real simple. Uh, they, they've got to come to saving faith, uh, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead for the sins of the world, um, and along with that, confess that they're a sinner and need help. And Jesus is the one who will be able to deliver them. So um, you're right. This is the world that we live in now. Um, but remember, the world has always been upside down. Jesus came to turn the world right side up. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I just realized I didn't say that at the top of the of uh, the second half of the program today. 
Um, if you're outside the local area, 877-630-KSLR. Randy wants to know, do you think Melchizedek was a theophany? Yes, Randy, he was. Um, I don't think there's any question. I know there are people that don't believe in the miraculous or the supernatural that say, no, he was just a stranger, a uh, famous man of, of the ancient world. Um, but but there, there's just so many clues. Abraham saw my day, he said, Jesus. And they said, you're not yet 50 years old, and you say that, that Abraham saw your day? Well, this is when Abraham saw Jesus, Melchizedek. He brought the elements, the bread and the wine. Uh, he was the prince of Salem, or the prince of peace. Melchizedek was. He, he was um, uh, a man without a beginning or end, uh, without genealogy. Uh, I, I think, Randy, that it's really obvious that Melchizedek was a, um, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament uh, and when he met Abraham returning from the victory over the, the battle with the kings, um, I, I just have to think that Abraham felt like, finally, there's somebody who gets me. And Abraham worshipped him. Abraham wouldn't worship anybody that wasn't God. Abraham wouldn't worship, wouldn't be permitted to worship somebody who wasn't God. And so he knew. Melchizedek, for sure, is a strange character. He appears virtually from nowhere, uh, and yet um, he worships him. Abraham does. So, yes, I think he was a theophany, and I don't know how anybody can miss it, frankly. Um, Kevin says, Do you think pastors should have spoken out about the Supreme Court abortion league? Kevin, No. Why would you ask that question? Um, you know, pastors are supposed to speak out about Jesus. That's what we're here to do. We're not here for a political solution. We're not here to convince people um, of a position on um, Roe v. Wade. We're not here to convince people uh, to, to follow a conservative way of life. We're here to tell people about Jesus. And can you imagine, Kevin, how I would have explained if I had talked about the Supreme Court leak? Um, uh, I'll tell you, I think, I think it was horrible. I think it, it's an indication of just how far our, our nation has fallen. But how would I explain to Jesus that I took his time with his people and I, his servant, would do something contrary to what he has already told me to do? Why, why would we talk about that? Um, the last three weeks, and this has been going on now for a couple weeks, I think, um, I've been able uh, on Sundays to talk to people about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And I know I'm going to start in the Gospel of Mark in verse 14 of chapter 9 on Sunday. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. I'm going to talk to people about Jesus. And I'm going to invite people to come to know Jesus. That's happened in each of these services. So, no, Kevin, if, if you're in a church that is political in focus, you're missing the point. And I would add, your church is missing Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting the people in your church aren't saved. I'm just saying that we miss the point. This is his house. It's his rules. He sets the agenda. And our agenda is winning people to Jesus Christ. Our agenda is training people to be disciples, to follow Jesus in their lives so that they can answer their, the call of God that he's put on their lives. And, um, you know, I, I personally think that that leak was um, wicked. Um, I, I think it, it it's an indication of just how far as a nation we've fallen. But the answer to all of that, Kevin, is Jesus. So, no, I don't think they should have spoken out about the Supreme Court leak. And if uh, if they did and they asked me what I thought, and of course nobody cares what I think, uh, I would tell them, no, you need to tell them about 
Jesus. Neil has, oh, I got a phone call. Let me go to the phone first. I'm sorry. I've got Matthew on line one from San Antonio. Matthew, sorry for almost bypassing you. No, it, it's all good, Pastor Ron. Um, this is not my first time. Um, it's, it's a delight to hear your words of wisdom uh, coming from the Lord. And I, I just, it's a, it's a great blessing to hear you every day when I come home from work. So God bless you. Thank you, Matthew. Um, Thank you. Very quickly. Um, my, my church is not really big on it, but they do, um, kind of sometimes preach off of, out of it. Um, but about, uh, what, what are your thoughts? on the Apostles' Apostles' Creed and also the Westminster, help I'm not killing that, Westminster's um, Catechisms, because um, I've read some of them, and they're very, some of them sound very, I mean, coming from the book, and just, I'm just uh, enlightened uh, from what, what they're coming from um, and things like that. So uh, if you could uh, elaborate on on what you think on that that'll be great and i'll and uh, i'll hear the answer off the air thank you very much pastor ron god bless you thank you matthew i i would have to take some time and refresh myself on the westminster creeds uh, i've i've looked at them but but i haven't studied them i'm not a huge creed person myself in the sense that I'm so connected to the Bible. But Matthew, there's certainly nothing wrong with the uh, Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Uh, those are, are simply statements of faith. They are completely um, orthodox doctrinally. Uh, and I don't mean orthodox faith, but I mean they were, they're, they're orthodox in terms of, of um, being correct in doctrine. Um, there, there are churches that um, will recite uh, especially the Nicene Creed um, uh, together, uh, and, and that's just a different way of doing church. I'd, I'd much rather spend my time uh, quoting the Bible, uh, but but there's nothing at all wrong with that at all. And um, I, I just think, um, again, it's a matter of priority. Um, the early church, I think, gives us the model to follow for church, beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, to the end of the chapter. Uh, and that's what we're supposed to do. It's the word, the word, the word. And that's how we equip people. And while the creeds um, codify the word, I think what's happened, because men are so um, um, inclined to follow tradition, that we get to the point where we can recite the creeds um, just almost mechanically, and there's really no prohibitive teaching value at all in 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 doing that. Um, um, I'll give you kind of a, a comparison uh, here at, at our church. Uh, we have what we call the Calvary Chapel distinctives. Um, the Calvary Chapel distinctives are distinctives that that um, identify who we are. Uh, and uh, as a fellowship of churches, we gather uh, in unity and fellowship with one another around those distinctives. In other words, we're like-minded, like-hearted. There's different styles and different personalities and different ministries, but we're, we're united in fellowship around those distinctives. But you know what? I would never teach those distinctives in church. Now, I have a pastor's discipleship class, and we've been doing this for almost all the years that we've been here. And uh, in that class, we do teach those distinctives because these are people that are either leaders or developing into leaders in our church. And I want them to know who we are. And I want to know before um, uh, we entrust them with significant ministry, I want to know that they're in agreement with those things. And I think the creeds sort of serve the same purpose. But I'm, I'm, I'm really personally completely convinced that the way to minister to the people of God is to, to proclaim um, by teaching and preaching the Word of God. And it's, it's our commitment to teaching the Word that's responsible for every good thing that's ever happened here. So uh, I hope that answers your question. I will do a little bit of work 
on the Westminster um, subject. Uh, I just don't recall it right now, Matthew, on the top of my head. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it more than you know. Here's the question that we were going to get to. This one is from Neil. He says, is it okay for children to participate in communion even if I feel she, obviously his child is a little girl, doesn't understand what she's doing? Yeah, Neil, I think it's a great teaching opportunity. Jesus said, suffer not the little children to come unto me. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to explain uh, what communion is and the value of uh, fellowshipping with Jesus. And you do it at an age-appropriate level, but uh, we always err on the side of grace. If 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 child wants to get baptized and uh, they have a rudimentary understanding of what it is, um, then I'm I'm perfectly willing to leave them in the Lord's hands and and uh, um, later, of course, as they grow in the grace and knowledge of God and His will for their lives, then then um, they may decide to do it again. But communion, uh, fellowship with Christ, coming to his table, uh, I think is important and gives you as a parent this this tremendous opportunity to share with her what it means. Now, I think, Neil, the best way to do this, rather than waiting for communion at church, is to have communion once in a while at home. You know, you're doing family devotions. I pray you are. And and, uh, you open the Bible. I think what a wonderful way to do that just every now and then. I don't I don't think we ought to do it every time that we we meet or every time that the family gets together. But I think, um, you know, you can say tonight, I think we have a special Bible study and we're going to partake of communion. And it gives you a really wonderful chance to explain to your child what communion really is. So I don't think it's necessary for them to have a full understanding. I just think their desire to participate matters a great deal. And that's the way I would approach it. That's the way we've always approached it here. We have communion in our children's ministry. Uh, on Communion Sundays, which is always for us the first Sunday of every month. We also, on special events, we have a family-style communion where um, the, the father and the mother will take their children aside and have communion as a family. But, but uh, Neil, I, I think it's, it's, it's wonderful for them to participate. Um, it makes them accountable, but I think it's wonderful and uh, gives you an opportunity to rightly represent the Lord. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Dennis asks, Pastor On, Jesus said lukewarm Christians will be spit out of his mouth. Does it mean they won't be raptured? No, Dennis, it doesn't. Um, if somebody's a Christian, um, zealous or lukewarm, uh, but if they're a born-again believer, on the day Jesus comes for his church, the day we refer to as the rapture, uh, every Christian is going to go to be with their Lord. Every single one. Nobody we left behind because they were a little bit lazy or because they uh, were lukewarm in their walk with, with Jesus. If they're a real believer and God knows those who are his, he won't be mocked, Paul writes to the churches in Galatia. Um, if they're really saved, they're going to get raptured. And that is the blessed hope of the church. And, and, um, and, and yeah, so God's not going to leave anybody behind. Here's the problem, Dennis. Lukewarm Christians um, is really an oxymoron. Uh, we're to be never lacking in zeal, but always keeping our spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Paul writes that to the church at Rome. So if you are or uh, the person you're talking about is a lukewarm Christian, um, th- then I think it's time for further discussion. Well, what makes you think you're a Christian? Or ask, how can a Christian be lukewarm? You're either in or you're not. If Jesus is Lord, he's in charge. How can you be lukewarm about that based on everything that he's done for you? And I think those are questions that we have every right to bring up so that the Holy Spirit can deal with the people that we're talking about. But uh, every real Christian, Dennis, is going to be raptured. Now, let me ask you a question. And again, I don't know if this is a personal question uh, or, or you're talking about somebody that you know. But let's just say the rapture happened right now. I'm waiting. (laughs) Okay, it didn't happen. But let's just say it did happen. How would you explain your lukewarmness to Jesus? 
How would you explain that you weren't active in sharing your faith? How would you explain that you're not involved in service or maybe not even involved in the church body? How would you explain that you're lazy spiritually and just really can't get into reading the Bible and you're busy so you don't really pray? How would you explain that to Jesus? Now, I know some people say, well, as long as I get there, that's enough. It's not. It's really not because I want everybody to think about that instant when we would explain to Jesus why we were lukewarm. Now, obviously, he's going to know, but we're going to be accountable. Many years ago, in fact, the first convert we had in our church uh, when we came to San Antonio, a guy got saved. He was a Catholic. He got saved, got really excited about the Lord. And he and his wife, now she was a believer earlier. Uh, They were in the Air Force, and and she was a believer. Um, And they went home uh, to see family over a holiday. And uh, the, the, the girl called Paula, the young woman called Paula, and, and was telling her, you know, she she went home and the family wanted to go to the bar. There's, uh, They live in an area which where bars are everywhere and families go. And let's go f- have some drinks and just have some fun like we used to. And she said she looked at her family and said, I don't want to be in a bar when Jesus comes back. See, that's where we need to be. We need to be active in sharing our faith. We need to be a part of a functioning local body. So Dennis, I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, Andy says, uh, Pastor on Matthew 8 and Mark 5 disagree on the story of Legion. One says there are two demon-possessed men. The other says one. How can you explain that? Well, Andy, there's not a disagreement uh, or a contradiction at all. Uh, on this issue, um, uh, Matthew identifies that there were two people. It was the tombs and, and uh, demon-possessed people, for some reason, feel comfortable in cemeteries. Um, um, and, and Mark uh, identifies only legion, and, and it's just simply a different focus. Matthew is sort of taking a panorama view of the scene and identifying more components of the scene. Mark's gospel is simply focusing on the one that Jesus was speaking to. But that's not a contradiction. Now, if Mark 5 said that there is only one man whose name was Legion, then that would be a contradiction. But um, it's just a different perspective. You know, these kind of things actually add credibility to our gospel accounts. Uh, if they were all the same. Now, the synoptic gospels are very similar. Um, they all they all tap into some of the same sources. However, uh, if they were word for word the same, then we'd wonder, well, hey, maybe this was a setup. But no, you've got different people writing from different perspectives. And, of course, John gives us a completely different perspective and a different focus as his gospel account was written much later. But there was um, two demon-possessed men there. One of them spoke, and the other one did not. Um, And Mark simply focuses on the one called Legion because he is the center of the story. And there are other things like that. I just this past Sunday talked about um, Matthew and Mark uh, placing the transfiguration at six days after. And then Luke's gospel says about eight days and then goes to describe the same event. Well, it was just a completely different perspective, a different focus. Luke was not an eyewitness. Luke would have gotten the information like a, an investigative journalist would have gotten the information by asking questions and doing interviews. Um, Luke was... Um, most likely including the day of Peter's confession. Who do people say that I am? Uh, you are the Christ. And, and uh, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for uh, this has not been revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. That would be the first day. Um, he also would have included, Luke would have, the, um, um, the day of the transfiguration itself. And so that's the same six days, but add those two days. So about eight days later. I hope that makes sense. Okay, we've only got two minutes left. Here is 
uh, question anonymously. Um, wives submit to husbands. Well, what, can do, what can a wife do to correct her husband when he's wrong? You know, Anonymous, I think I'm going to let Paula deal with this a little bit tomorrow as well. But but let me just say at the beginning, um, wives submitting, that doesn't make us passive. Uh, you're a partner in that marriage. And your husband um, is accountable to God to consider your perspective. Um, your husband, uh, if he's wrong... If you love him, you need to call him out. Now, you do it respectfully, of course, and lovingly. But, um, you know, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? And I think it's just one of those things that you can deal with uh, if you can sit down and talk to one another. But all wives, listen to this, please. Submitting to your husband doesn't mean you can say nothing. If I do something stupid or say something stupid, I count on Paula's correction. That's what a partnership does. And uh, we men are accountable to God to rightly represent him as we lead our family. So uh, I'm going to keep this on the board here, and maybe Paula wants to deal with it tomorrow. Uh, If she doesn't, then it's her show, so she can do what she wants. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. This has been uh, a good week thus far. Uh, We've got our Bible study tonight uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah uh, setting up the showdown at the Mount Carmel Corral uh, in chapter 18 of our study tonight. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow for the date day edition of the program. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.